The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning, church. Um, I want to let you know that as we planned First Peter and uh, as we decided how we were going to walk through it as a staff and how we can make it known to you, um, we decided that it was in our best interest that when we talk about marriage in First Peter 3, to put our resident marriage expert on it. So here I am with five months of experience. I stand before you um, ready to share with you the tools. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, if anything, um, I've approached this text and I've really felt a bit more nervous than perhaps I have with other passages um, simply because I recognize in my five months that I'm even more broken than I realized before I said I do. And I realize that I am completely and fully under my own power inadequate to tell you a single thing about marriage. But I praise God that his his word has authority in our lives and that what I am preaching to you today is not marriage according to Matthew Hall. It is as God has ordained for it to be. It is as he has proclaimed for it to be. So this morning, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want to encourage you to turn there uh, with me. Um, And if you are a guest here with us, I just want to say that we are so excited to have you. Um, And thanks for picking this Sunday, and you you get to hear me preach, and so thank you for that. But um, if you'll, um, at at the end of the service, just take a moment and find a blue connection card and fill that out for us and hand it to one of our greeters on the way out, we'd really, really appreciate it. So we're excited that you're here with us. And one of the things I want to do before we look at the passage is I just want to get us up to speed on what's going on. And so if you've noticed the graphic, it's been 1 Peter, born again to a living hope. And so this phrase, born again to a living hope, has been a theme that we've recognized throughout 1 Peter from the very beginning up until this point. In in chapter 1, we recognize our identity as elect exiles. And so that means that God has set us apart. He has chosen us to be his people, his race, his chosen people set apart. But we're homesick. Like, we're exiles. This isn't our final destination. This isn't our ultimate home. He set us apart, but he set us apart for a home that is yet to come when everything will be made right. So Peter's saying, what do we do in the in-between? What do we do while we're here and now? And what we see is this identity and the fact that we're born again to a living hope plays itself out through suffering and through trials. And so what we recognize is that it's okay to be homesick because it shows that we've been born again to a living hope that is set beyond where we're at right now. And this living hope is untouched, unfading. It is, and it cannot be taken from us because our hope is Jesus Christ. And so we've been elect exiles, born again to a living hope that is set beyond. It helps us suffer well. It means that God actually can use our trials to make us look like Christ. And we call that sanctification. And knowing the reality that we are born again to a living hope, we're commanded to live in that hope. And more than that, Peter says that we're actually elect exiles built upon this cornerstone that is our living hope, who is Jesus Christ. That God has chosen us to come together and to build a building of sorts that magnifies and glorifies the name of our great God. And so Peter says that we are elect exiles. It's okay to be homesick because our hope is set beyond. And through the trials, he's shaping us, he's forming us, he's constructing us into this magnificent temple far greater than the Old Testament temple that proclaims the glories of our God. And then Peter describes in chapter 2 the ways this plays out. 
And so we've heard it in a sermon preached on obeying our government and our authorities. We recognize that our ultimate authority is God. And because our ultimate authority is God, we are then to recognize the authority God has given to the government. And so we recognize that there are certain areas where we must step out of line. But God has given us government as a good thing to help legislate to show that there are rules that God has given, the government enforces those. And so we have a structured, civilized society because of that. But we also saw it as we talk about slavery and the trials and the difficulties of that. But we talked about how God, by all means, hates evil slavery, sinful slavery, exactly as the Bible condemns. But when Peter was writing, he was talking about a different type of slavery, a type that might be more equated for us to work and working for difficult bosses and supervisors. If our hope is a living hope, if we are truly elect exiles born again to a living hope, then we can work for our bosses and our supervisors as well because, again, God has established that authority in his own power. We don't ultimately work for them. We ultimately display the glory of God. And so because we're elect exiles, there's are two ways it plays out. Well, this morning we're going to look at the third way that our identity and being born again to a living hope plays out, and this time it's in marriages. And so one of the things that we can all agree on is that marriage is somewhere in our sight for our lives. It's in a few different ways. Either you're married, um, perhaps you've been married, you want to be married, or you decided that marriage isn't for you. It's somewhere in our spectrum of our lives. It's something that we can all unite and agree on. But we can also agree that marriage, especially if we just look at it in our culture and our context, is broken. So I was driving down Wade Hampton the other day, and I saw one of those little like stick signs that you put in the ground. It was bright yellow, and it said, divorces, $199. And I thought, what? (laughs) Like for $200, I I don't want to, but for $200 a person, I I could walk in and get a a divorce for $200, and that's it. That's the end of it. It's, It's that easy anymore to end this picture of something far greater. And we all recognize that We've all perhaps even been affected by divorce because it's just all over. If it isn't in your family line somewhere, then you've heard of someone getting a divorce. You've heard about the tragedy and the brokenness that comes with it. But what I want to share with you this morning is the fact that marriage paints a picture of God's glory. And more than that, the title of today's sermon is The Missional Marriage. See, marriage has a purpose. It's to display the glory of God. And when we recognize that, then our marriage will be on mission. So that said... We are going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So join with me. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what I want you to recognize is this. As I preach this morning, 
I'm going to be talking about the purpose of wives and the roles and responsibilities, the roles and responsibilities of husbands. But if you are someone here who is single, maybe you're dating, maybe you're on the path to marriage, maybe you've decided that's not for you, there are still principles in this passage I want you to listen very carefully that you can pick up on and you can understand. Perhaps it'll explain why you feel a certain way about things because you're wired a certain way as a woman or as a man. Perhaps it'll explain why you're prone to certain weaknesses. But I want you to understand that maybe why it seems like I'm just addressing our husbands and wives or our couples in this room, there is still a greater picture being painted. So that said, what the plan for this morning is, we're going to talk about the roles and responsibilities of wives, the roles and responsibilities of husbands, and then how this plays out in marriage. It's a simple outline. So let's begin with the roles and responsibility of wives. Peter continues his theme of submission. It's this idea that he writes about. If you've noticed in the two sermons where we've talked about government and those who are under its authority and slaves and masters, again, we can think of it in this context of the workspace for our day and culture. He didn't write to the government and he didn't write to bosses. He wrote to those who were commanded to live in subjection to the authorities over them. So he wrote to the citizens and he wrote to the workers or the slaves. And here, Peter begins with the same thing. He writes to wives and tells them to submit. And what's interesting is that he gives a majority of this text, this portion on marriage, to wives. If you look, there's a pretty good paragraph, about six verses given to wives and one verse given to husbands. And so he wanted to address wives first. But here's what I want you to understand. Especially as a male, I'm almost hesitant to even use this word submit because I understand that in some of us, especially in women, when you have a man standing from the pulpit saying submit, there's this tendency to want to build up and be like, who are you telling me to do that? And and what I want to do is I want to clarify what I mean when I say that word so that as we go throughout the rest of the passage, you understand what Peter is saying by the word submit. First of all, we need to understand that in Peter writing to wives, just in him simply addressing wives and saying that word, he's doing something very scandalous. This is not something that was done in that day and age. Men, by any means, who had any position of authority or knowledge or wisdom did not write directly to wives. It did not happen. Because in the Greco-Roman age in which this letter was written, people didn't write to or acknowledge slaves or wives in instruction. Wives or women were seen as lesser humans and had fewer rights in that culture. So by addressing both slaves and wives, I want you to understand that Peter, by saying simply one word, by simply writing to women in that day and age, he is upholding the dignity and respect that you deserve and that you have been given by being created in the image of God. In writing that one word, he combats the culture around him that says that women have less worth because we know that is not true. So certainly by submit... He is not saying the same thing that the culture does about it. He's saying something completely different, that women are equal in dignity and created in the image of God. So while masters were put in authority and husbands were given a charge to lead, this is not a leadership by which Peter gave permission to take away from the dignity of others. If anything, he says to husbands and to masters to uphold the dignity of those who were placed under their authority or their leadership. And their job was to ensure that they're workers or slaves. And we'll see in a little bit how husbands, your job is to ensure that your wives are treated with dignity and respect. That is your responsibility to lead. Any other form of leadership is not the leadership that God has commanded. So it is not to belittle women at all. I want you to hear that very, very clearly. And let me pause to to say that Peter also in addressing wives. Before I say anything else, he is eliminating 
any possibility of this text being taken in a way as to promote any type of abuse, whether emotional or physical or whatever, any type of abuse or mistreatment of any type. This text does not leave any room for men or for husbands to mistreat women in any way. So by all means, any definition of submit that anyone could ever try to bring out of this text that would mean any type of belittling or abuse, it cannot be had. It cannot stand when seen in the whole of Scripture and even in the context of this passage. So what we need to understand is that this command to submit is rooted in the gospel. This command to submit is rooted in the living hope who is Jesus Christ. It actually gives us freedom to respect those who lead. It gives women freedom to respect husbands as leaders because they are ultimately following God. See, Peter is not saying to submit in every instance to your husband because he is always right and you have no right. If you've been married for any amount of time, you certainly know, wives, the husbands are not always right, right? I mean, you know, that's just kind of like a given rule of marriage because to say such a thing would go against the very point Peter makes. Instead, Peter instructs wives to submit, recognizing that God compels us to submit. And in fact, uh, Peter actually uses a play on words here, and he says in verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. That's the exact same word in Greek. There's, there's no change in that. That's why it's translated the same way. Because while Peter is riding in very scandalous t- territory by addressing wives, here's the other thing we need to recognize. In Greco-Roman culture, wives were expected to take on the religion of the husband's. So whichever God the husband worshipped in this polytheistic society, the wife was expected to naturally follow. So, of course, the husband could change minds one day and the wife doesn't have any say. The wife has to follow suit with that. So imagine the tension that would happen as Peter's addressing wives, particularly wives to husbands of unbelievers, when her unbelieving husband is worshiping one God and she's not following suit like every other wife did and she's worshiping the one true and living God. See, this isn't just bad for him. This doesn't just look bad for him, but it would actually come with consequences from the society. In fact, he could be eliminated from certain roles and positions in society. He could be ostracized and shunned. The fact that the the wife would go to church or go to a meeting of believers sometimes in the week without the husband would be seen as awful because women were escorted everywhere by a man. To see them separate was just completely absurd. So there's already this degree of tension that Peter's addressing where the wife is not going of culture. She's putting husband's livelihood at risk, but it's worth it because of the living hope. And what Peter's saying is the last thing your unbelieving husband needs is a nagging wife so that your husband may be one without a word, so that you, although you recognize that under this idea that your husband is worshiping someone else, you worship the one true and living God, do not compromise that, but by all means, try to live at peace with him and don't make the situation worse. And by by doing that, you can actually display the living hope. So for this idea of submission, I ultimately want to point you to Jesus Christ. If anyone ever had a right to avoid submission, it would be Jesus because he created all things and all things were created for him. He, had all, he has all power. He is all-knowing. I think about the picture of God that's painted by the song, Behold Our God. I, I, just, I love that song. It, it gives me in my mind as I think about who, who, can, who can even challenge the one who knows all things? Who can teach him? Like what teacher does God have? As you think about those statements, you just get this picture of the grandness of God. Certainly, 
Jesus didn't need to submit, but he did. And he submitted in a particular way. I want to point you to Philippians chapter 2, which says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If anyone had a right to avoid submission, it would be Jesus Christ. But he willingly took on flesh and humbled himself. And it wasn't just that he humbled himself by becoming, by, by adding flesh to himself, but he humbled himself by taking the punishment for our sins and dying in the worst way imaginable. There is no lower point that he could have gone. He willingly submitted himself. When Allie and I did our premarital counseling of Pastor Scott, he recommended, uh, well, he didn't recommend, he instructed us through um, The Meaning of Marriage. It's a book by Tim and Kathy Keller and um, a very, very good resource um, for whether you're looking at marriage or you are married. But in that book, Kathy Keller, who's Tim Keller's wife, she said this about submission, and, and it really, it, it, it affected me. It, it was incredible. And I want to share that with you. She said, if it was not an assault on the dignity and the divinity, but it rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of the servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? If it did not injure, if it did not take away from the dignity of Christ, it did not take away from the fact that he is fully God to submit himself to the will of the Father, then how could, she said, how could it hurt wives to submit himself, to submit themselves to their husband's leadership? In fact, it actually adds to respect and dignity to the wives. So Peter says the first way to give an example to your husband is by living in a way that respects his role as leader. Not out of fear of the husband, but out of fear of God, who has established marriage in a particular way. And in verses 3 and 4, Peter describes a manner of life which shows a confidence in the hope given by God. He says this. He says, do not let your adornment be merely. I'm going to add the word merely in, and a lot of translations add that in for clarification. Do not let your adornment be merely external. The braiding of hair and the wearing of gold jewelry, putting on of dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So there's a temptation here that some people might take to have the Amelia Bedelia interpretation of this text. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Amelia Bedelia. I don't know why, but they were some of my favorite books growing up. And Amelia Bedelia is a children's character who is in stories for like, you know, uh, grade school students. And she has this great ability to take everything literally. She, she's, a, she's a housemaid for Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. And so in one instance, they say, Amelia Bedelia, can you bake a sponge cake for us? And she says, no problem. I'm going to bake you a sponge cake. And she puts some sponges together, slaps some icing on it, puts it in the oven, pulls it out, and they eat a literal sponge. And they wonder, what have you done? We, we meant like the type of cake that's a sponge cake, not a literal cake of sponges. So some time passes, and in another story, they ask her to go pitch a tent in the woods so their kids could have a camp out. So she finds the tent, she walks out to the porch, and she throws it in the woods. She just pitches it out there, right? They said pitch a tent, that's what she did. And again, they found the tent 
not put up, broken and in pieces, scattered all over the woods where it had been thrown. And they were like, that's not what we told you to do. We said, you know, like to set it up. And so the reason why I share this with you is because we need to avoid doing the same thing here. Certainly what Peter is not saying is that, ladies, we're establishing a new dress code at Abner Creek of no dresses, all right? That's not what we're saying here. We're also not saying no earrings allowed, so we're going to pass the offering plates through again, and we're just going to ask you to put those in the offering plates. That's not what we're doing. That's not what Peter's talking about. He says, do not let it be merely external. Do not let it be just simplified to external. In fact, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, that God tells Samuel as he looks for the king of Israel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what Peter's doing here is he's addressing the cultural pressure of the day. And what I want you to understand, especially for women, is that the cultural pressure you feel now here in America to look a certain way, to act a certain way, and to have your health put together in a certain way is not all too different from what was going on in this culture at, at this time. There was the same type of pressure. And when Peter encourages women to dress modestly, if you will, in what he's saying, this part actually wouldn't be so scandalous for him to write. In fact, many different writers from the day encouraged women to dress modestly. He, he would be echoing those, those writers. But the difference is the reason why. See, no, there's other writers encouraged women to dress modestly or to look deeper than the external features. But Peter does because we've been born again to a living hope. Because why we dress the way we dress or why we pay as much attention to the way we look, all of those things are informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by what he's done for us. If we've been born again to a living hope, suddenly the adorning that's external has a different reason for us and even less importance. And in fact, Peter ties this together by using the word imperishable in verse 4. He says, um, do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The word imperishable was used again in chapter 1 to describe our living hope that is imperishable and unfading. He's linking the two together. But then Peter gives an example from Scripture. And so as I was reading through this passage and I was looking at exactly what Peter was referencing when he was talking about Sarah and how she called Abraham Lord, I was interested to see you know, exactly what part of the story. Because oftentimes when you make an argument for something or you're making a point, you want to give like the best and brightest situation. You know, if, you, if you're making argument A, you want a scenario in which a person perfectly resembled argument A and it worked out well. So naturally I thought Peter was picking a, a story from Sarah's life where she was at her highest and it was the best, it's the greatest example. But what I want to share with you is that women, I want you to look at the example of Sarah today and I want you to know that it's okay to be broken and it's okay to have messy homes and to not have parenting altogether. That this story, and in using Sarah as an example, it's a beautiful example because it just takes all the pressure off. And so, what Peter's referencing is the encounter between God, Sarah, and Abraham in Genesis 18. What's going on here is that. God is coming to visit Abraham to promise him the birth of a child. But there's a little bit of a problem because Sarah and Abraham are both over 90 years old. And for the most part, childbearing doesn't happen when you're over 90 years old. There's a few problems with that. And so here's the encounter of what happens, starting in verse 9 of Genesis 18. Where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, there in the tent. 
God said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, no, but you did laugh. So that's what we've got going on in the text here. This is like straight out of Scripture we've got going on. And we see that when Sarah calls Abraham her Lord, it's in a position of doubt in God's promises. And that's really intriguing. It's even more intriguing that what we've got going on here is God himself comes down and says, I'm coming back in a year. And when I come back, Sarah, you're going to be holding a baby boy. We're going to be really excited. You'll see that my promises come to light. And she loses it. Like, she's not like, yes, Lord, amen. She busts out laughing. She's like, are you kidding me? Like, you really think I can bear a child? I'm 90 years old. I don't think it's going to happen. She's laughing. She's losing it. And of course, God knows everything. So he says, Sarah, why'd you laugh? And she goes, well, I didn't, me? No, I didn't laugh. God said, I know everything. I know that you laughed. It's a pretty funny encounter, if you ask me. And it's, it's making a bigger picture. Ultimately, through this promise, the Messiah is born. But what Peter is saying is that while this should have been a glorious moment in the life of Sarah, where instead of laughter, her response was, you know, amen, so be it. Let, let it happen the way that you've said, Lord. Instead... A wave of doubt over, overwhelms her. I mean, like, she can't take it, and it's expressing her, um, itself in laughter. See, Peter pointed to a time, though, when although she laughed, we know that this baby boy came in Isaac, and through his lineage came Jesus Christ. Because while Sarah didn't believe in that moment, Abraham did. And Sarah trusted Abraham's leadership allowed him to lead the way and lead the family and trusting the Lord. And she ultimately submitted and saying, listen, I mean, this this sounds like the funniest joke I've ever heard to me, but I'm going to lay that down. Abraham, I trust you. Ultimately, Lord, I trust you. So be it. She ultimately trusted in the Lord. So here's what this means to you, wives, right here and right now, because I understand the weight of the situations that you're in. I, I can't even imagine actually feeling the pressure that you feel. But listen to me. Take a breath. Because what this text does and what Peter does by using Sarah as an example of what he's making clear is he's making clear that you do not have to be perfect every minute of the day. You do not have to be perfect and appear perfect to everyone around you every minute of the day. You do not have to have it all together every single second of the day. Just because the house is messy and the kids ate Play-Doh today and they were late for school and the car won't start and, you know, the hose to the washer broke and now the, the bathroom and everything's flooded and everything is just going wrong, it does not mean that God cannot use your marriage to display the gospel. Because God is faithful even when we are faithless. When Peter says, do not let your adorning be simply external, he's saying, live out of that blessed hope. And find rest in him when everything goes wrong. And mothers, I know the pressure. I know that how your kids act, even in church, you feel like it reflects on you sometimes. But God says, I can still use you. So look to the example of Sarah and see how ultimately God used her in her laughter and how she trusted Abraham. So, next to the husband's. 
the command to the husbands is far shorter than the instruction to the wives, to which case most husbands are probably thinking, whew, got it easy today, right? Um, that's, that's not quite the case, but Peter says to live with your wives in an understanding way. And he says that this plays out, uh, if you look in verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as she is the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. And this plays out, and he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. For the sake of, of clarity, what we're going to do is we're going to say, so that y'all's prayers may not be hindered. Because it's a you plural there, and that's the clearest way I can make it, okay? So that y'all's prayers may not be hindered. That's really important because I'm going to make a point off of that in just a second. So these verses describe practical advice, and I want you to understand what Peter is saying. And so husbands, I really want you to look at me and, and just really key in. Men of God, listen to me. How you lead your families shows what you believe to be true about God. How you lead your families shows what you believe to be true about God. If we lead out of fear of God, then we will respect our wives. We will uplift them, show them honor and dignity. We will pray with them and pray with our families. Because the language of women as weaker vessels, it does not take away from the dignity and respect of women, but instead Peter's just addressing the reality that we're wired differently. So for the most part, Men, we're a little bit less emotional, we're usually physically stronger, and we have a bit more courage than women do. That's just the way that we're wired, and there's a purpose for that, is to help us lead well. God has uniquely wired us to be able to lead, but we must again look to the example of Christ as to what it means to lead. So we look to Christ at what it means to submit, but men, let's look to the example of Christ and what it means to lead. So in John 13, after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, he said this, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. The one who had every right to lead, did not need to submit, washed his disciples' feet and said, this is the picture of leadership I want you to remember, service. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 writes to husbands and says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This leadership is sacrificial as being willing to give our lives for our wives. Tim Keller, in the same book I mentioned earlier, he summarized it this way from a male's perspective. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. You see, in the missional marriage, we display God by being examples of Christ to one another in Jesus' sacrificial authority and sacrificial submission. And when we do this, it stands out to the culture around us. So Peter commands men to live in such a way that it is easy for wives to trust their husbands and their servant leading. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on this a little bit more in, in a few moments, but I want you to understand that, again, your leadership responsibility as men is not meant to be abused or to belittle your wife, but it is meant to serve her and to lift her up. And so here's where I want to lead us today. Um, I'll, I want to show us just three ways this is my third point, that this, this passage means for marriage. Because I understand that maybe for the most of us, we understand that God has established marriage and we understand the purpose of it. And maybe if you didn't before, you do now, we've talked about that. 
But ultimately, we're going to walk away and we're going to be like, so, okay, I know that as a wife, I'm supposed to submit. I know that as a husband, I'm supposed to lead, but how? And if I just ended the sermon with those things and we walked away and we had no idea what to do with it, then we wouldn't be living very missional marriages at all. And so I just want to show you what this means. And ultimately, I just want to take a moment and encourage you. We're going to spend time this week in life groups talking about how this plays out. And if you've never been to a life group, this is the perfect week for you to get plugged in because you're going to hear me talk about some ways that I believe this plays out in our marriages. But these life groups are a context in which you can have conversations with other married couples where you can go, hey, I, I struggle with that too. Have, have you ever like, found a way to overcome that? And you can have conversations about what's going on and it can strengthen your marriage. So please be sure not just to listen to me now, but if you've never been to a life group, I want to encourage you this week, you know, get plugged in. We're going to talk about these things again. So, so what does this mean for marriage and for life? Um, singles, if you're single in this room, dating, uh, not married, I want you to know that this advice and understanding how we're wired, that we have specific roles, can actually make a difference in how you live now. That, that marriage is going to amplify and expose our brokenness. That's the simple fact of the matter. Two sinners being in the closest possible relationship two humans can be, it, it really reveals even more our brokenness. But there are ways that singles you are broken now that you're aware of that we can apply this advice as well. So we do these things, and I want you to understand that these things are to lead us toward a better marriage. But listen to me, do not lose the ultimate goal of our marriages to make much of God. So if we are born again to a living hope, how does this play out in our marriages? So here's my first thing that we can do. Men, you can lead well. And women, you can help well. Men lead well, wives help well. Um, I think as a man, even though I've only been married five months, we've all had an experience, or maybe you've been like riding in a car with girls if you're single and like you're hanging out with your college friends or their friends around you, where a woman's emotions have kicked in and told you to do something completely irrational. Maybe you're driving down 85 and there's a kitten on the side of the road. And like, you know, the wife is like, we've got to save that kitten. And you're like, honey, I'm doing the speed limit, of course, because we submit to governing authorities. Well, I go down 85. I can't just stop and pick up a kitten. I remember, I remember one example. Um, we were at Allie's gr- uh, grandma's house, and I believe this was before we were married. And um, we walked outside, and there was a sidewalk that leads to the driveway. So today, I, I was, that day I was going out to get something out of my car, and there was a cat and a chipmunk. And that cat had captured the chipmunk and was tearing it up. I mean, just straight up destroying the chipmunk. Okay, so there were two responses that happened in that moment. The very same event was going on, but there was that event from a male's perspective and that event from a female's perspective. From the male's perspective, here were my thoughts. Man, this is like a free episode of Planet Earth, right? Like, I've got the perfect camera angle. I'm watching nature take its course. This is awesome. All right, the food chain is happening. We're seeing it play out. I don't even need to go to a science class. I'm just watching it happen, okay? That's the male's perspective. The female's perspective was not that. Allie and Grandma and all the other girls who were there were like, oh my gosh, do you see what that cat is doing? You've got to do something. To which all the men looked at each other and were like, what? Okay, so, you know, the women, I mean, and listen, we got to be honest, some of you girls in here, some of you ladies, when I was telling you what was happening to the chipmunk, you're already like, did he do something to stop it? I mean, did he step in? Did he take a shovel to that cat? Because he better have, all right? That's the difference. Um, 
I had no emotional attachment to that chipmunk. I had never seen it before. But Allie, I mean, it was like her pet chipmunk was being attacked or something, okay? That's just the reality of the situation. And I do that to pick on Allie, but I mean, that's a reality that we all have seen before. For me, it was just with a cat and a chipmunk that this became clear. And what we've seen clear, become clear in that story is that emotions can sometimes paralyze us or cause us to make irrational decisions. Now, emotions are given by God for a purpose, and they are good But sometimes, both men and women, we can allow emotions to go too far and to actually paralyze us from stepping out in faith as God has called us to. So what this means for us is that as men, there will be times when your wife is overcome with emotions, and sometimes it seems like they're making the most irrational decision in the world. And this is not an excuse for us as husbands to belittle them and be like, well, suck it up and come on, all right? That's that's not an excuse to do that. That's not, that's not good leadership. And wives, don't let emotions be seen as an opportunity for you to be paralyzed when you know the Lord is calling you to trust him, even though it seems like there's no way he's going to catch you. Do not let emotions paralyze you. Instead, work together towards Christ and look to his example. Think of Christ who leads his church patiently, never growing weary, or turning in wrath towards his bride. Because again, if, if anyone has any right to grow frustrated as wife, it is Jesus with the church. Because we are broken people, and we are messy, and we still can't necessarily get this thing right, but we try. And Jesus is patient with us. He, he never grows weary. He never turns in wrath. There's never been a point where Jesus has said, all right, enough of this church thing. I'm coming up with a plan B. But he patiently loves us. He patiently guides us. And wives, think of Christ, who in the garden, before he submitted his life to the will of the Father and died for us, had every reason to turn back from the cross. In that moment, he felt the emotions. He felt the weight of what he was about to do, but he did not let his emotions paralyze him. He willingly trusted the Father, and the Father's plan and stepped out in faith. Look to Christ. See, as couples, it is essential that you communicate in order to overcome these obstacles. It's the only way it can work. So men, listen to me. In leading well, this means that you cannot lead well if you're constantly going against your wife and going behind your back when it comes to raising your kids. If the kids go to the wife and they say, they ask a question, the wife says no, and you say, eh, don't worry about that, go ahead and do it, you're undermining her authority, and that's not respecting her or leading her well. Men, you cannot lead well if you completely disregard your wife in making your plans because you want to play golf instead of spending time with her. These are just some practical ways it plays out. I mean, leading well means considering the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions of your wife and leading her in those, respecting her, giving her time, respecting her authority. It means working as a team. Wives, if you allow your emotions to dictate what you believe about your husband or, or you think that making passive comments or completely avoiding an issue will help change his mind, you're not going to help well. And my point is this, that we need to communicate. Husbands, we need to communicate to our wives. Wives, we need to talk to our husbands. We are a team. We cannot properly display the glory of God if we are not working together as a team. We must communicate. And husbands, I want to ask you this. This is a question that's really shaped how I've attempted to to lead. It's messy. I'm not perfect at it by any means. But would you submit to your own leadership? Husbands, are you leading your families in such a way 
that if you were the one who needed to trust your own leadership, would you be able to do that? Or do you come across as domineering, overwhelming, or just inconsiderate? I want you to think about that today. One way that Allie and I attempt to communicate, and again, this is messy and not perfect. I'm just trying to give one example. Um, one of the things that uh, I've, I've taken a drive towards that Allie has graciously supported me is in paying off student loan debt. Because, man, if anything can paralyze you, it's student loan debt. And so uh, I've put this master plan together because I started listening to Dave Ramsey and, like, I'm on fire. I'm like, let's go. Let's pay off debt. We can, we can be debt-free, you know. Debt is dumb. Cash is king and, and, and such. And so I put together this grand plan, and I'm, like, really excited. And I had everything short of a PowerPoint presentation to show Allie that in X amount of months we can be debt-free, right? Well, Allie, who really doesn't care about Dave Ramsey at all for the most part. Didn't even know who he was probably until I told her about him. Um, she graciously decided to help me with this. So what this looks like is every month, Allie and I have to communicate, especially about finances. That's something we all have to communicate about. What that looks like for us is we just sit down and we say, all right, what do we, what do we need for the month? We know like the essentials get carried over from month to month, but maybe um, you know, Allie's graduating and needs some clothes so that she can look really nice on graduation day. Okay, well, we can add that into the budget. So she communicates that with me and I write the numbers down, right? Because like, I'm a numbers guy. I've got the plan. I do it. Here's the best part though. Then she loves executing it. So I get to like lead the plan out and then I just pretty much hand it over to her and say, all right, here's what we're going to do for the month. And she is the coupon queen. She's going online. She's finding like these deals where if you buy like four of these things, you get them like $50 off or whatever it might be. I mean, she is just helping us accomplish this goal. We, we work together. We're a team. It's beautiful. It's incredible. So I get to lead in making the plan and Allie gets to help so well in executing it and leading the way and having that done. That's just one way it plays out. I'm just saying that's a really practical example of how we do it. Next, um, do not let your adorning be external. So here's what I really wanted to to press into this for a moment. Um, Like I said before, the pressures that we face in America are very similar to what women face in the Greco-Roman world. And I remember that in one instance, um, Allie and I were, I think we were like watching TV or something, and a commercial came up where it was a makeup commercial. And you know, like, they're like got those makeup removers and they're like, and like the water splashes so perfectly and stuff. And like the thing is, is if you look at that like makeup model's face, you, you can try as hard as you can and you cannot find a single imperfection. It has been so touched up that there's not a single imperfection on that person's face who's designed to model the makeup. And what I, what I mean by this is that everywhere, like a makeup commercial, a commercial that you watch when you're watching TV, women, you're being bombarded with this idea that you have to look a certain way, that you have to be a certain way, that your face has to, to be perfect with no imperfections, no blemishes. And we know that no matter how hard we try, we can never reach that. If we don't have a, a certain accessory, if we don't have a certain dress, I mean, guys, it's even to the degree where if we're not careful, we can be susceptible to that too. It's everywhere. The pressure is around us. But what God says is he says, listen, I, I look deeper than the external things. I look at the heart. So wives and mothers, listen to me. When it comes to the state of your soul before God or a clean house, God doesn't care about the clean house. When it comes to makeup or your heart, God does not care about your eyeliner being perfect. He doesn't. He looks deeper than that. The way you look, the way you feel, that does not change God's love for you. And I'm even challenged as I ask these questions. Men be challenged too. But 
I mean, even as a whole, do we spend as much time putting on Christ as we do getting ready in the mornings? Have you ever thought about that before? Do you prepare for your day spiritually as much as you do physically in getting ready? I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm just trying to put in perspective the principle that Peter makes clear to us. If you're spending 30 seconds reading a quick verse and an hour and a half getting everything ready so you can look good for your day, I'm just saying that shows an imbalance in our hearts. It's just the way it shows itself in how we live our lives. So be challenged. And husbands, one more thing. In helping your wives with this battle, your words have power. Your words have incredible power. You can speak into your wives' lives like no one else can. Do you help your wife feel beautiful? Do you speak to her in an uplifting way? Singles in the room, men especially, do you treat women with respect? That does not mean you need to compliment every woman you see, but do you treat them with respect? Do you fight for the dignity that they rightfully have that God has given them in the way that you treat women, men? How often, husbands, do we waste our time and waste opportunities that we have to build our wives up? How often do we waste that? Please, don't do that. Use your words to encourage your wife. It is a team effort. And finally, this is pray together. So as I said before, Peter tells husband to live with wives in an understanding way so that y'all's prayers may be heard. And the understanding that Peter has here is very straightforward. You should be praying together. It's as simple as that. There's not an example I need to give there's, there's not a way necessarily that this, prays out, that this plays out, but you simply need to be praying together. I mean, Peter just gives it to us as it is so that your prayers may not be hindered. The expectations you will pray together and the beauty of praying together as husband and wife is that your hearts will not only be heard by God because God hears our prayers and that is incredible, but that you'll hear one another, another's hearts, that you'll see and hear from one another in a deeper way, in a more spiritual level. And your love for one another will grow as you pray together. So Peter's command is that our prayers may not be hindered by praying for the wrong things. Because ultimately what we understand is that praying together does not line God up with what we want. It lines us up with God's will and what he wants for us. And so it lines us up as couples with God's leadership and his direction and how it plays out in our lives. In order for our marriage to be successful and missional, it must line up with God's will. It must. And that's why we need to pray together. So here's how I want to encourage you this morning as we come to a close. I want you to know that one of the things I've experienced this week is the desire to truly live out what I preach. And that's very difficult. Because I cannot stand before you and say that with these three ways I've shown you how obeying the word of God plays out in our marriages, I've been 100% perfect because I haven't been. It's messy. And, and it takes time for us to learn new habits and to love well and to desire to uh, do good things for our spouses. It's messy. But the beauty is that God's love for you does not change based on that. If you are an unbeliever here, if you've never had a point in time when you've submitted your life to Christ, you've turned away from your sin and trusted him for salvation, then I hope that this description of marriage sounded really weird to you and sounded like something you would really desire. And where this all begins is with your relationship with Christ, 
with you repenting and turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because the one thing that this picture of marriage has been built on is being born again to a living hope. And you cannot have a marriage that displays so clearly the glory of God. You cannot have a marriage that is built on being born again to a living hope if you have not been born again to a living hope. So I'm going to pray and our musicians are going to come back up and we're going to have a time to reflect and to respond. If you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, I'm going to be seated at the front. Pastor Scott is over here in the front. Please come talk to us. We want to tell you what it means and what you can do for next steps in following Christ. If your marriage is in a place where you really feel like you need prayer, you need help, again, we are available. We want to help you and be here for you. But ultimately, I just want you to think about how you can respond. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your example in Jesus Christ of being a husband and being obedient of how to be a wife and be obedient. I thank you that you have established marriage as a clear picture of Jesus and his love for his bride, the church, his people, his elect exiles, those who have been born again to a living hope. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never been born again, who has never trusted in you for salvation and turned away from their sins, God, that, that this morning would be a turning point for them, that they would give their lives to you and recognize how good you are, how much you love them and care about them, and how we see all of that in Jesus on the cross. God, I pray for the marriages in this room. God, that you would strengthen them. God, that you would uphold them, that they would be testaments to uh, your glory and your goodness and your gospel. God, would you help us be missional and recognizing that when we love one another well as husband and wife, that when we treat people well, when we're not married, when we treat everyone around us with respect, we're displaying your glory. We're displaying your goodness. We are even without words, starting the conversation about your gospel. God, would you give courage? Spirit, would you give boldness to our people, to these people, to all of us, God, to respond in the way that you would have us to respond? It's in your name I pray, amen. Whatever you need to do. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.